I'm David Atterbury, and this is Big Truths, a weekly podcast where we grow in Christian doctrine by looking through the door of church history. Charles Haddon Spurgeon was a gifted preacher. He often went into the pulpit with minimal notes. In fact, there's the story of how Spurgeon got his sermons. He would wait until Saturday night, withdraw into his study until he arrived at the text that he would preach at the next morning. The naturalness that Spurgeon felt in the pulpit, it can be attributed to his immense personal gifting. He certainly had that. He had something that very few of us have. There is, however, another, I think, more significant reason for his extemporaneous power, how he would be able to look out upon the crowd and speak to them as one friend would with another. And that significant reason, that power, friends, that's within our grasp. Because there was something more powerful that Spurgeon had than simply personal gifting. It was that he loved people, and he felt the value of their souls. Spurgeon was in earnest when he preached. He wasn't up there showboating. In fact, you can go throughout Spurgeon's writings and his recommendations on sermons, about the reason why one ought to give illustrations and the use of them, and they're all aimed at doing people good, to love them, to do them good, to recommend Christ to them. His earnestness in the pulpit, it gave him power. And friends, that's a power you can have. It's a power we can have. It's within our grasp. It's possible for you to gain that power. And we'll learn about this and more in this episode big truths. As we've been saying over the past few weeks, it's the Holy Spirit who converts men. You can't do it. I can't do it. God alone must save people. Salvation is of the Lord. But that doesn't mean you have no part to play. So yes, God is the one who saves people. He alone takes out the heart of stone and gives us a heart of flesh. He is the master, the Lord, the mediator of the new covenant. He gives the spirit to his people. But God is pleased to use the tears of men to move hard hearts. God is the one who takes out the heart of stone. He is the one who gives us a heart of flesh. And we, in his sovereignty, have a part to play in this process. God wishes to use your words. God even wishes to use your tears to break hard hearts. Listen, you're never going to be moved to tears for the souls of lost people, until you feel the weight of their souls. For example, in his book, The Soul Winner, Spurgeon gives an illustration of a man who is unaccustomed to helping the wounded. And this man is asked to help, help lift up another man on a stretcher. And as he does so, to the man's surprise, the wounded man on the stretcher was heavier than he thought. And having felt the heaviness of the man, afterward, he chose not to leave the man's side. 
Well, what lesson should we draw from this? Spurgeon says this, quote, When you know how to carry a man in your heart and feel the burden of his case, you will have his name engraved upon your soul, end quote. Spurgeon believed that this was what many needed to experience, and then they would be better preachers. And I believe that's going to help us, men and women, be better evangelists. It's going to help us be better sharers of the gospel. It's going to give us boldness. It's going to give us the words to say. Joseph Elaine, we've been talking about for several weeks, Joseph Elaine, the Puritan who wrote the book Alarm to the Unconverted, This man in this book had such an impact on the life of Charles Spurgeon. In his book, published many hundreds of years ago, Joseph Elaine was moved to write that book, he says in the preface, because he felt special pity for the unconverted. Sort of like how a father feels a deeper pity toward his one child who is sick. He wrote with great energy and with weeping, because he cared for their souls. And all throughout this book, he pled with them to find life. You see, when a man is burdened with the fate of eternal souls, he becomes earnest. All flippancy, all showboating over one's education evaporates. When a man is in earnest and is able to stand in the pulpit, his sermon becomes lit on fire and he is able to look up out from his notes and lock eyes with people, and he's able to plead with every man. Every illustration, it's going to have a purpose. Every illustration, it's going to serve a purpose to advance the point of the sermon. Uh, No part of the sermon is going to be ornamental for showing off. So that preacher who is in earnest, he does not seek to win admiration from the audience. For example, in the book The Soul Winner, Spurgeon said that Christians are not only witnesses to the truth of Christianity, but they are also pleaders for Jesus. And so the earnestness of a man matters. Quote, It seems as if the sign and token of Christianity in some preachers was not a tongue of fire, but a block of ice. So when a man has to speak for Christ, if he is not in earnest, let him go to bed. End quote. So Spurgeon said, when you stand in the pulpit, if you're not in earnest, if you don't feel the burden of the theme of the text, as they used to call it, the main point of the text, the theme of the text, if that theme doesn't possess you, consume you, fill you with fire, it would be better if you just stayed in bed. It would have been better for everyone that if the pastor just slept in that day. So the reason why a preacher ought to have a tongue of fire, as Spurgeon says, is because he cares for the souls of his audience. He's in earnest for them. He's not earnest just to be interesting, though certainly men who stand in the pulpit with extemporaneous power, able to look up from their notes and stare and look out upon the audience and directly talk to them as one friend to another. That certainly is interesting. But you need to be in earnest for their souls. The problem with people, 
unsaved people, and even Christians, the problem with people is that they're careless about their own souls. And so the minister must care for the soul of a man more than the man himself cares for his own soul. The job of a preacher, Spurgeon said, is not just to preach, but also to gain the attention of men. He said slumbering hearers need to be awakened. And so for this reason, quote, A great part of our labors lies in seeking out attractive illustrations, parables, and choice sayings, by which we may coax men to attend to their own interests. So Spurgeon didn't see illustrations as a way to entertain the common man, as many preachers seem today, toss out stories, attempt to garner laughs. Spurgeon said we ought to take care to say things that are interesting so that we can gain people's attention. But notice it's not gaining people's attention just so that they would pay attention to us, as if that's the most important thing. But Spurgeon said, we may coax men to attend to their own interests. So it's in the best interest of these men and women to hear of these things in Scripture for their own good. We have to first get people to listen to us before we can help them. And to help them, we ought to get them to pay attention. So Spurgeon sharpened his fishhooks, and he added glimmers to the bait in order to catch prey. He viewed illustrations as a means to raise heads, if those heads would pay attention to the gospel. So it's this concern also that moved Joseph Elaine, the Puritan, to continue his passionate appeal throughout his book, 148 pages. In fact, it's at some points in his book, Alarm to the Unconverted, that Joseph Elaine seems to run out of steam, seemingly unable to continue the argument. He suddenly bursts out in emotion. Things like this, he would say. Now mercy is wooing you. Now Christ is waiting to be gracious to you, and the Spirit of God is striving with you. Now ministers are calling. Now conscience is stirring. Now the market is open and oil may be had. You have opportunity for the buying. Now Christ is to be had for the taking. Oh, strike in with the offers of grace. Oh, now or never. End quote. Elaine's alarm exemplifies Puritan evangelism, which was logic on fire. The Puritans believed that the mind could be persuaded by proofs, but their sermons were not merely cerebral. We often think of the Puritans as sort of morose men dressed in black, always frowning, as one author said, the Puritans were those people who were always suspicious that someone out there was having a good time. But when you actually read their sermons and become more accustomed to who they actually were, you see that wasn't the case. They weren't just merely cerebral men. They also believed that the will and the passions of men could be moved by eloquence. Joseph Elaine was an eloquent man. The Puritan model 
was to preach, so as to convince the head, to move the heart, and to impel the will. So it was the aim of the Puritan preacher to achieve an effect in his hearers. He was therefore constrained to preach the gospel in a way that could be understood by any in the audience. When you read the sermons and the writings of the Puritans, they're actually very accessible. You'll be surprised by that. I encourage you to pick up a few small Puritan paperbacks and go to Banner of Truth. Read them yourselves. They are very accessible because they wanted people to understand and apply what they were teaching. They wanted to preach so as even to win the hearts of children. For example, William Perkins, who was a Puritan, he was born in 1558, died in the year 1602. William Perkins said that the preacher must observe an admirable plainness and an admirable powerfulness. So what ought the preacher to do? He ought to be plain. He ought to be able to be understood, and he ought to be powerful. As one modern preacher once told me, sermons ought to be kindergarten in their outline and PhD in their force. In one similar fashion, Spurgeon followed the Puritan tradition. He spoke as to be understood by all. Listen, it's no admirable thing to not be understood by your audience. It is no admirable thing to speak far above the heads of your audience. That's not commendable at all. For example, a scathing critic of Spurgeon, a man by the name of J. Ewing Ritchie, at the end of a long tirade of denunciation against Spurgeon, he was finally forced to confess this, quote, Spurgeon preached to the people in a homely style, and they like it, for he was always plain and never dull, end quote. Isn't that wonderful? Wouldn't you want that to be said of you? Always plain and never dull. The editor of Spurgeon's Sermons, F.W. Robertson, he said this, quote, Mr. Spurgeon and his vulgar slang is a violent reaction against the cold, unfelt conventionalities with which men have grown so familiar. He recognizes the men and women before him as flesh and blood, end quote. Richard Baxter whom I said in the previous episode, was a friend of Joseph Elaine. In fact, Richard Baxter's, uh, the Reformed pastor, was written in honor of Joseph Elaine, I believe, who was his friend who died very young at the age of 34. Richard Baxter recalled listening to the sermons of Joseph Elaine. He said his sermons were so melting, so convincing, so powerful. Why was that? Well, listen, it's because Joseph Elaine had the desire to see souls saved. It caused both Spurgeon and Elaine to speak in a way as to melt hearts. Spurgeon said that one's hearers need to see the preacher in agony over their eternal condition. Spurgeon wished 
to have the insistency of Richard Baxter to preach as though he was sure never to preach again, as a dying man to dying men. Spurgeon once wrote this, I pant for that inward agony of spirit which has made men preach the gospel as though they knew they would be wrapped up in their winding sheets when they descended from the pulpit, and that they should stand at the bar of God as soon as they had finished their sermons. And I feel that as we want an agonizing spirit in the pulpit, our hearers need it too. End quote. And what of us? Spurgeon said that the way in which a man can be filled with blood earnestness in the pulpit is to consider the fate of souls that refuse to repent of their sins. If a man can develop a heart of compassion for the lost to know the value of a soul, if he would, quote, think about the dread immeasurable eternity to which men are hastening, then we would go forth every day ready to preach the gospel. The same should be said about our own personal evangelism to our family, our friends, our neighbors. We must consider the weight of another soul and to carry them in our hearts. Listen, the impending doom of hell, yes, it has caused some men to become sweaty caricatures, wiping their brow with a handkerchief, pacing the stage, these Bible-waving men in black suits, they're derided in popular culture. These are the men screaming into bullhorns on college campuses, calling on people to turn or burn. Now, not only does the culture hate these so-called intolerant men, but the church largely wishes to have nothing to do with them either. I mean, listen, no one wants to be the Howard Dean of his church, screaming into a microphone, making everyone feel uncomfortable. So what has happened? Well, now pastors sit on stools on stage with their coffee cups and untucked shirts, and they want to have a chat instead of a sermon. There's no judgment. There's no hell. There are only three ways to be a better you. I think a century of pragmatism that arose out of revivalism, Charles Finney and anxious seats and sawdust trails, it's left the church on strange ground. Churches would like to present themselves as more mature, but there's an older voice that would like to disagree. For Spurgeon, the reality of hell was not a means to beat people into submission. The unquenchable wrath of God ought to cause the preacher to well up with tears and speak more softly, not more harshly. Spurgeon once said, Some men have used the terrors of the Lord to terrify, but Paul used them to persuade. Let us copy him. End quote. It is possible to plead and beseech without harshness, but it will have to be done with tears. And these tears, they don't begin with a man ascends into a pulpit. These tears begin when he is struggling over souls in private prayer. The struggle with God in prayer is going to give you energy for the struggle with men. Then the preacher will be able to plead with souls and to say along with Spurgeon, We have come out to tell you that the world is on fire 
and you must flee for your lives and escape to the mountain, lest you be consumed. I want to thank you for listening to Big Truths. For more information and show notes, you can go to our website, bigtruths.net. Now, next week, we're going to begin examining an important topic related to everything we've said before over the past two months, related to the resurrection of the dead. So next week, we're going to consider the topic of cremation. In light of the Christian understanding of the resurrection, how should we think about cremation? I'll meet you again next week, where we will open another door for more big truths. 